Today our passage is Genesis 15. It's a shorter passage, but it's got a really big idea. So chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, if you're using a blue Bible, it's on page 12. Next week we will finish chapter 15, so write that down in your worship guide. And this week be sure to look over that a few times, study it as much as you'd like to. And uh, it'll be verses 7 through 21 next week. So we'll begin 15 this week, we'll end 15 next week. My introduction today is going to be very short. My introduction today is going to be very short. I want to recall the events of chapter 14 very quickly. Abram's nephew was taken. His name was Lot. And Abram gathered his men and conquered four armies from the east to get Abram back. After that, he met with two kings. One of them was the king of Sodom, who was not a godly man. And Abram said no to him. Then one of them, his name was Melchizedek. He was a godly man. He was the king of Salem. And Abram said yes to them. And Melchizedek blessed Abram. And so our passage today is shortly after that. Not sure how long, but not too long. But let's pick up the story in Genesis 15, verse 1, and I will read through to verse 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 6 is big. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans or Galatians, you may be familiar with that phrase. And that's where I'm going to spend a lot of my time on today. But I will say this, every verse is loaded. So what I want you to do as we do every week is take a few minutes, read it to yourself over and over again, meditate on it. When the time's right, your discussion leader will begin the discussion. And y'all share. Share what you see. Share what God's showing you. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid. Just share. Ask questions. Dig into it. And uh, when the time's right, I'll head back up. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Genesis 15. God and Abram. May God bless our time in his word. Come, Lord Jesus, I pray, and bless this time. So verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. If God is your shield, 
We don't have anything to fear, do we? Nothing. Doesn't matter how powerful, how big, how nasty that thing is. Doesn't matter if it's cancer. If God is for us, who can be against us? Doesn't matter if it's betrayal. Doesn't matter if it's injustice. Doesn't matter if it's pain. God is our shield. And because of that, we don't have to fear. And that's precious. That's precious. There's several dozen occasions in the Psalms where God identifies himself as our shield. And it is beautiful. See, God is the one who protected Abram when he went into Egypt. In chapter 12, he had no business going down there and he lied to a very powerful man. And that powerful man could have had his head. God protected him. We saw in Genesis 14, early on, he went up against four very powerful armies. Those four armies had conquered 11 other armies, I think it was. And God gave Abram the victory. God protected Abram. God is his shield. Verse 1 ends by saying, your reward shall be very great. What pops into Abram's mind when God says this? Your reward shall be very great. We know what pops into his mind when we read verses 2 and 3. An heir. Children. God had been telling him, you're going to have a son. You're going to have descendants. But at this time, Abram was most likely in his 80s. And Abram says to him in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. God responds in verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man, Eliezer, your servant, shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. So God made a promise in verse 1. And Abram, just the first thing that pops in his mind is children. And I really think as I look at Abram's tone, and and every commentator I read on this, and I read quite a few agreed, Abram really wanted to believe God here. How many of y'all have really wanted to believe that something was true, but it just seems so radical, it seems too fantastic? To believe and to be true. I think it's something that God's people, myself included, struggle with. At least, at the very least, from time to time. But Abram wants to believe and he says, God, what will you give me? God, I don't have what I'm promised yet. What will you give me? And then he talks about Eliezer, his servant. Okay, Abram didn't bring that up to say, no, God, I got this figured out. I have a plan B. But it was just the cultural practice of the day that if you were a man of wealth with servants and you didn't have a kid, one of your heirs would receive everything that you have. Abram wasn't fighting God, but he was trying to figure out how in the world was God going to do this? God, won't this plan be okay instead? And God gently and in a fatherly way says, no, that plan's not okay. 
I'm really going to give you a kid. Just wait for it. Reminds me of the man in Mark chapter 9. He prayed to Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's a struggle that every person of faith struggles with at some point in their life. And then in verse 5 and 6, God takes them outside. And he says, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. How many stars are on that screen? And if you get closer, you'll see more than you can see from your seat. One person at my table said that astronomers currently believe that there is the number two with 22 zeros behind it, that there's that many stars in the known universe. And we haven't discovered the entire universe, have we? So the number two with 22 zeros behind it. I don't know how to pronounce that. I don't know how to say that. But how long do you think it took for Abram to get the point? Clear night? I can't even begin to count the stars. Look at how Abram responded. He believed the Lord. We see the gracious and loving character of God here. That God speaks to him over and over and over again. And Abram struggles. And God doesn't cast him aside or smash him like a bug. But God says it again. And God even provided an object lesson for him. How, much, how gentle and gracious is that of our God? We notice that it is through the word of the Lord that we grow in faith. You want to grow stronger in your faith? And I'll tell you, read this book. Meditate on this book. Study this book. Dig deep into this book. Find some people who love this book. And the God who gave us this book. Who this book is all about. And read through this book. Over and over and over and over again. And grow in it. And God speaks to you. What's the difference between a strong person of faith and someone who's weak in faith? Usually, for the most part... The person who's strong in their faith is very familiar with what God has said. And as they've grown familiar with what God has said, their faith has been strengthened and it has grown. Sometimes we as Christians look at our life and we know the deepest, darkest corners of it, don't we? And we say, how can God save me? But yet in his word, he has promised to do so when we go to him in faith. We aren't that much different from Abraham church. We aren't that much different at all. God is telling Abram, I'm going to give you a child. Abram doesn't know how in the world that's going to work. 
and you find yourself struggling and battling with the promises of God and you don't know how in the world it's going to work, just know that He's a God who does the impossible and He can do anything. And when He says He will do something, He is faithful and true and He will do it. Now we get to the second part of verse 6. And we will stay here for the rest of my time. And he counted it to him as righteousness. We had a hard time defining righteousness. Anybody else have a hard time with that? We don't think about that idea much, do we? And we're going to go deep into it in the next little bit. We're going to go deep into it. It's not something we talk about very often. It's a huge idea in the Bible. It's a huge idea in the Bible. But... It's also one of those things that's so vast, it's so expansive. Where do you start? And that, that right there in and of itself, it just, it's kind of like, what is righteous? Whoa, where do we start? It's so, such a, a big idea. If you would, turn to your handout, Romans chapter 4. I've got a ton of scripture, almost entirely, maybe entirely from Paul, the Apostle Paul. Why do I have all this scripture from Paul? Because Paul understood what happened in Genesis 15. Abram, no doubt, understood it to some degree. I believe that Moses, when he wrote Genesis, understood it to some degree. And God's people, between Abram and Jesus, understood it to some degree. But the Apostle Paul looks at this promise that God made to Abram, and he looks at the response that God had to Abram's faith, and he sees that as a central idea, one of the biggest ideas in all of Scripture. And I believe one of the most critical and most important ideas in all of world history. Romans 4, beginning in verse 18, talking about Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That was the quotation of verse 5. Verse 19. He did not, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. So in verse 2, we see the quotation from Genesis 15. I'm sorry, verse 22, we see the quotation from Genesis 15, 6. In verses 20 and 21 of Romans 4, We see the nature of Abraham's faith. We see what type of faith it is that God wants us to have. In chapter 4, verse 20, we see that people of faith grow in their faith. You don't become a spiritual giant overnight. It's a process. That's why we go to church. That's why we need church family. That's why we need encouragement. That's why we need somebody to warn us, occasionally knock us over the head. That's why we need someone to love us and be Jesus to us. He grew strong in the faith. 
we see the process of growth. When we look at verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 15, as he's struggling, God, I've got this servant. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a son. And then in verse 6, he believes the Lord after God tells him again. In Romans 4, verse 20, it says that as he grew strong in his faith, he gave glory to God. Do you know as you grow in the faith, learning to trust God more, that you give him glory because you're saying to him, you're trustworthy, God? (laughs) In Romans 4, 21, we see that the faith that pleases God always looks outward to God. Contrary to what some of our TV preachers say, Oprah Winfrey, tons of the people with the other company I work with, going to Phoenix in a few weeks, and they're going to have this motivational speaker, and all he's going to tell me the whole time I'm sitting there. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff we're going to do too. But but for an hour long, he's just going to say, you guys are great, y'all can do it. And God's not going to be a part of it at all. I'll probably step out and call my wife. <laughs> but in Romans 4, 21, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced that God was able to do it. Not that he could do it, but that God could do it. See, the faith that pleases to God always looks to what God can do or what He will do or what He has done. Please don't have faith in yourself. Have faith in God and in Him alone. In Genesis 15, 6, what happened when Abram believed God? God counted his faith as righteousness. And we see that in verse 22, Romans 4, 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In the next three verses of Romans 4, the Apostle Paul shows us that the righteousness that God gave to Abram is also available to us. All right? Y'all, Abram is a significant character in the Bible, but at the core, he's a sinful human being in need of the grace of God, just like us. And the same way that he got saved is the same way we get saved. He just happened to live 2,000 years before Jesus instead of 2,000 years after Jesus. He believed the promise of God. Let's read Romans 4.23. Paul explains this idea further. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 24 says that God's righteousness will be counted to us. God's righteousness will be counted to us. When we believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead. And if we look at Romans 4.25, we see that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. So it says, Romans 4.25 says two things. First, it says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That's talking about his death. Then it says Jesus was raised for our justification. What does justification mean? That's not a word that I ever heard of till I went to Bible college. 
I should have heard it in church before, but I didn't. Romans 4.25 shows us how we can have a relationship with God. And when it says that Jesus was raised for our justification, what it's saying is that Jesus makes us right with God. Jesus makes us right with God. And how does He do that? Does He just give you faith and change your life so much that you can do all the good things God wants you to do and then you're right with God? No. No. That's not what Paul's talking about here. God doesn't work in us so that we can get our act together so that we can earn our way to heaven. When it says that we are justified, what it means is that Jesus' perfect obedience to His Father's law, to the law of God, Jesus' perfect worship while He was alive, everything that Jesus did, that righteousness that no one else who's ever lived has ever had, is credited to our account. If a millionaire gives me a million dollars and he puts it in my bank account, who does that money belong to? Yes. Did I work hard for it? No. Was it a gift? Yes. Yes. If God, in His loving kindness, would choose to give us the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus. Whose righteousness is it? It's ours now, isn't it? But it's Christ. It was a gift. But it belongs to us. And because it belongs to us, now we can start changing our life. Now we can start cleaning things up. Because God declares us righteous, now we can be transformed. We don't clean our act up so we can get to God. We come to God and we say, God, I've messed it all up. I've, I've disobeyed you. I haven't worshipped you. I've been all about my own kingdom and not yours. God, I can't clean my life up. I've been trying to do that. But I never get very far. I've screwed it all up, God. I can't do it. I need you. And then God comes in. And then the process of change and transformation can take place after that. See, Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, that He did not deserve. And He gives us the reward that He earned, that we aren't worthy of. Say that again. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, that He did not deserve. And He gives us the reward that He earned. That we cannot earn. So what does it mean that God justifies sinners? Well, it means that God makes us righteous. Romans 5, 18 and 19. It's on your sheet. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, talking about Adam in the garden, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19 brings some clarity to it. Paul writes, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. By Jesus' perfect obedience, 
the many will be made righteous. Anyone who believes in Christ will become a Christian. And all people are called to believe. And any of those who are called to believe that do, they are made righteous. And I want to point out that this is a one-time act. This is a moment when God gives us His righteousness. You can say it's at the point of our conversion. It's the point when we first believe. You, you, You know... I can't go into the technical nitty-gritty of it today, but I find that our catechism that we have here every single week, and this is why I love the catechism. I can't. And y'all, we're going to finish this next week. You know what we're going to do after we finish it? We're going to do it over again. Because that's what catechism is for. The repetitive nature of it over a long period of time just, just helps us to see. It summarizes incredible truth from the Bible. And so then all of a sudden we start seeing it in the Bible. It helps us like that. But I love question, uh, where's that? 32 of the Catechism. What do justification and sanctification mean? We've been talking about justification today. Justification means our declared righteousness before God. Sanctification means our gradual growing righteousness. Okay, Both of them have to do with righteousness. But justification is a one-time thing. It has to do with a declaration. We go very wrong when we get these two things confused. I have been a Christian who had these things confused. When Christians get these things confused, or if they've just never been taught these things, the Christian life is very, very hard. And we have entire groups of churches in our nation that have got justification and sanctification confused. And the Roman Catholic Church has taken it to a level that I believe is from the pit of hell. I I think there's Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. Hear me say that. But they get this wrong. And I'll go into that a bit more tomorrow online. Justification is a one-time act. Sanctification is like what happens between the time we're justified and the time we die. Okay? So if you're a Christian, you're in the process of your sanctification right now and God justified you a long time ago. Consider the imagery we're dealing with here. Think about a courtroom. Is God not our judge? We have a judge. Does not God have a law as every land does? Are not there guilty people and innocent people? Are not there defendants? Are not there criminals? And aren't there law-abiding citizens? And at the end of a trial, the verdict is pronounced. Guilty or not guilty? Does that judge pronounce the verdict every single day afterward when he goes back to work and puts his robe on? He does it once. Christ, our judge, declares us righteous once. And here's what's great about that. There is a judgment day in the future, yes. But if Christ has already said you're righteous, is that comfort for you for judgment day? And notice, it's not our righteousness. It's His. But it becomes ours when He's given it to us. The implications of this are just absolutely incredible. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Elect just means those whom God has chosen. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. So if God has given you His righteousness... And someone else comes along and they say, oh, no, he's guilty. Who's right, God or the other guy? God is. 
God is. So it is God who justifies who is to condemn. So what does justification mean for us? Romans 5.1. Look at it with me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are justified, if you've done what Abram did and you believed God, and God has given you His righteousness, then you have peace with God. He's not angry with you anymore. He's not trying to punish you anymore. He, he, he's not out to get you, if you feel that way. <clears throat> our God is good. Our God is awesome. And He offers us peace. How many of you have been at odds with someone lately? It's no fun, is it? It's hard. How much harder is it to be at odds with God? The Creator. And God offers us peace. Notice in Romans 5.1 how we have been justified. By what? Faith. Not by works, not by paying off our debt, not by obeying the law. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That just means it's been shown or revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Who is Jesus' righteousness for? Those who do what? Believe. Believe. Look at verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Is justification a paycheck? Or is it something else? It's a gift. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's go down to Romans 3.28. We hold that no one is justified apart... I'm sorry. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So us having a relationship with God takes place outside of us following and obeying all the Ten Commandments. Now the Ten Commandments are important, but they aren't as important as some Christians make them out to be. Faith in Christ is so much more important. Galatians chapter 2.16. One verse here. And three times it says we're justified by faith and not by the law. Three times in one verse. Paul writes Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is made right with God. That idea, that word made right, that's justification. A person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ and not by obeying the law. We have believed In Christ Jesus, so that we may be made right with God. There's a second time because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. And then a third time. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So three times he says you will not be made right with God by obeying the law. And two times he says you can only be made right with God. You can only be justified by faith. Titus chapter 3 verse 4 and 5. When God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Is this good news to anybody? I'm excited. So I ask this question. Why did God make faith the way 
then we receive justification. Why didn't God just say you need to be a really wise person or you just need to volunteer a whole bunch? Or you need to be a really good mom or a really good employee or a really good dad or a really good husband? Why, well, why did God not say if you're a loving person, then I'll justify you? Why did he choose faith? I, we could go in a lot of different directions with this, but the simple answer is that all those other things require us to do something. But faith says clearly you and what you've done. Faith in God according to what He has done. Faith is is the opposite of depending on ourselves. If we could obey God and be good enough to get it, then we would earn it and therefore we would have glory for ourselves. And it would make us better than other people. But because we can't earn it, because we can't work hard for it, and He gives it to us, who gets the glory? God. And that puts us all on the same playing field. So whether you're a mob boss... Or sweet little Sunday school lady who's never heard a fly in your life but still a sinner. You both come to God the same way and one of you you is not better than the other. I think about the three previous chapters of Genesis we've read so far. I was impressed that Abram, you know, God told Abram to leave his land and go to another land and Abram did it. Did God kind him righteous then because of that? Remember the dispute he had with Lot? Well, their herdsmen had with Lot, and it was kind of a bad, hard situation, and Abram really handled the situation really well. Did God count him righteous because of that? Remember when, in Genesis 14, Abram went to battle, put his life on the line to rescue his servant Lot, and then the high priest of God, Melchizedek, came, and he said, Melchizedek, I'm going to worship God by giving you a tenth of everything. Did God say he was righteous because of that? All that good stuff, you know where that good stuff came from? It flowed from his faith. Those things did not save him. And this is important. If you're working hard to get to heaven, as Alan Jackson sung of back in the 90s when I was a teenager, or well before that. If you're working hard to get to heaven, your works are in the wrong place and your confidence is in the wrong place. Now let me tell you, when you talk to people about Jesus out there everywhere, I talked to my neighbor about Jesus yesterday, and he's got this all confused. And I'm in the process of sharing the gospel with him. You might see him pop in here at some point. But our assumptions are the exact opposite, that we have to attain some level of righteousness on our own to get to God. So this changes everything for our evangelism. What we're presenting is such good news, but it goes against the grain of what most of us believe. Pastor J.D. Greer says this in his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, that little yellow book some of you have. He says this, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing that we've done that makes God love us less. And that is because of Jesus' righteousness. We belong to God because God has given us His righteousness, not because... We have our act together. And let me finish this up very quickly in the next few minutes. 
Because we are justified by faith, that means we don't earn it. And I've touched on this a little bit. Look in Romans 4, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. We've kind of already covered that idea, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, that's a quotation from Genesis 15, 6. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is also helpful with this. By grace you have been saved through faith. There we go again, by faith and through faith. This is not of your own doing. You didn't get saved because you had because you worked up enough faith to get saved. You got faith because God or you got saved because God gave you faith and that faith cried out to God. And it is not our own doing. End of verse 8. It is the gift of God. Verse 9 is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, it shows us the proper place of good works. They don't save us, but we work because God has saved us. We work because we want to glorify Him and love Him. As Martin Luther says, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Good works flow from it tell you a story. It'll start out real cute, but then it's going to get kind of gruesome. So put your PG-13 ears on, okay? <clears throat> Isaiah, my sweet, amazing four-year-old. The thing that he says at nighttime, have sweet dreams, Dad. He heard that somewhere, and that's just his thing. I have sweet dreams. And if he forgets to tell me, he'll come find me after I've tucked him in. And he'll come say it again. He'll call for me and have sweet dreams, Dad. How many of y'all remember your dreams? I think children do more than adults do, generally speaking. I wake up after a dream and it's on my mind, sometimes just for a few minutes. And I quickly fall back asleep the next morning. I know I had a dream, but I don't have a clue what was it. That's, we all have different experiences. That's mine. So Isaiah, at least a few mornings a week, he says, did you have sweet dreams, Dad? And I want to say yes, and I want to tell him all about it. And I'm just like, oh, gosh, what, what, you know, what was it? Well, there's a dream I remember, and I want to tell you about it. 2006, I was in Istanbul, Turkey. I spent three weeks in Turkey. It was a mission trip. At the time, I had hopes and plans to spend my life in Turkey, uh, working in the church. Less than 1% of the Turks are Christians. And when I was in Istanbul, that season of my life, I was wrestling with these truths. I was studying the Bible, particularly Romans 3. I was trying to figure out, what is this all about? I had a dream that I'll never forget. And it bothered me so bad. For days it bothered me. I could not shake it. But then I realized what it was all about. So for months in my dreams, I had been a serial killer. Taking one victim after another, probably several a week. 
And I had come across an abandoned warehouse way back in the woods, and this was the center of my activity. I couldn't have, been do, I couldn't have done what I was doing without this warehouse that was abandoned and way back in the woods. One day, I was in the final stages of my activity with my most recent victim, and I realized that earlier in the day, I had made a mistake in covering up my tracks. I had left some evidence and some clues behind. And because of that, I knew for sure that I would be caught because of my mistake. So I quickly scrambled, trying to figure out how not to get caught, how to clean up all the evidence. And there was a ton of it at the warehouse, and then there was evidence, you know, outside of the warehouse where I had started the process. And I was trying to figure out how to clean it all up, to destroy it. But I realized that what I did, they were probably going to find me fast. And I knew what that meant. I knew my time was short. There was no way I could get out of what I had done. I was a murderer in the dream. I was a lawbreaker in the dream. I was guilty. And the fear and the dread and the torment was unbearable in that dream. And it was heavier than anything I've ever known in my life. I have never felt so guilty and just certain just sure certainty of what was ahead was going to be awful. It was unbearable and heavier than anything I had ever known. So then I woke up. I started to put my shoes on. And I realized I needed to put my clothes on. So I put my clothes on. Then I put my shoes on. And I'm doing this and I can't. I'm just, I'm just freaking out. I'm doing this as fast as I can trying to tie my shoes so I can get out of there and so I can run. The fear, the torment, the dread that I had of of certain judgment was upon me. And I'm sitting here in the earliest stages, awake, grabbing whatever amount of money I had, whatever it is that I could get so that I could run in my hotel room in Istanbul in the summer of 2006 because I'd been a serial killer and I was about to get caught. And then I woke up. I have never in my life had such a shift or change in how I felt from one moment to the next. Reality set in when I woke up and I realized that that dream was not my story. I was not a murderer. I was not guilty. I was not going to be punished as a murderer. I was, in fact, something completely different than a serial killer. I was a law-abiding citizen. And I did not have to fear the law. I did not have to fear the police or the FBI or whoever it was that would come after me. I was no longer in fear and in dread of being executed or a life in prison. That dream was not my story. And when I woke up, And 60 seconds after I woke up, or when I woke up from the dream, 60 seconds after I got out of bed, the change and the shift for me was incredible. This is what Christ offers us in the gospel. 
He offers it to you. See, everyone is guilty because we've all broken God's law. But now, through faith in Christ, our sin is removed, our guilt is removed, and we have God's perfect righteousness. And because God has given to that to us and He promises to never take it away, all fear, fear not, God says, all fear of condemnation can be removed. This is how you can know for sure that you're saved because it's not based on you behaving and, and doing the right thing, but it's based on what Christ has already done and what He's given. But all fear of condemnation is removed because we have Christ's righteousness. All fear of judgment is removed because we have Christ's righteousness. All fear of hell is removed because we have Christ's righteousness. And because of that, we can belong to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are...